All right, brothers and sisters, let's turn now um, to Genesis chapter 1. We are beginning a four-part sermon series on the topic of gender. This isn't coming out of nowhere, obviously. Um, It's coming out of the fact that we dealt with in 1 Corinthians 11 the topic of gender, men and women in the church, and how the roles between men and women are to play out in the context of the church. But we know the topics of sex and gender are not limited to just discussions in the church. They are literally everywhere. All around us, people debate what gender and sexuality even mean now. You had Bruce Jenner's transition into Caitlyn. You had Fallon Fox, who was born a man, who boxed against Tamika Brintz, who was born a woman in a women's division match. Colleges ask which pronouns students prefer now to be referred by. And Facebook does the same. And after repeatedly adding to the number of pronouns, Facebook eventually just gave up and said, write it in. In our cultural moment, gender seems to be everything and nothing all at the same time. It's a very confusing time to be alive. So this morning, we're going to begin a brief four-part sermon series on the subject of gender. Now, in discussions about men and women and gender, there have historically been four different labels that have been mentioned repeatedly in the church. Think of these on a spectrum. So there's feminism and then egalitarianism, complementarianism, and patriarchy. Let me explain what each one of those four issues talk about. If you considered the four issues on a spectrum, feminism would be on one end, and patriarchy would be on the other end. These two views of men and women are fundamentally opposed to each other and have very little in common with each other. Feminism, as most of us are aware, would promote a radical mutuality stressing the equality of women, believing that men and women are virtually interchangeable and preferring feminine pronouns and names for God in some aspects of the liberal church. On the right side, you would have patriarchy, which would promote radical hierarchy, the preference for male leadership in all aspects of life and emphasizing the differences between men and women. And that leaves us with two sort of mediating positions, Egalitarians believe that men and women are fundamentally equal but not interchangeable and they should share authority equally in service and leadership in the home and the church and society. Complementarians believe that men and women are equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood and that distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are determined as part of God's created order. Well, I think based upon what we considered in 1 Corinthians 11 even though complementarianism can be misunderstood and misapplied in various sectors of the church, we would find ourselves largely comfortable with the label because we believe it to be biblical, that both men and women are created equally in God's image, as we'll see this morning, and that God has designed us in distinct yet complementary ways for his glory and our good for his mission in the world in both the home and the church. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we dive in to the topic of gender. What I want to do this morning is just lay a basic biblical foundation for this discussion. And then in weeks to come, we'll talk about some of the ways sin affects our understanding and application and living out of our gender, and then the way Christ has come to redeem us back to God's original design. 
So that's kind of where we're headed in this series. So this morning, I'm not necessarily getting into all the controversial topics, although some of what I say no doubt will be controversial, but the purpose is to just lay out a positive vision of what God intends gender to be. Gender is a good gift of God, friends. It's part of God's good design in creation. And so before we start talking about all the ways that our sin hijacks God's plans, let's just talk about God's plan. Let's just talk about the goodness and glory of the way God created us as male and female. So three points this morning. Men, are crea- men and women are created. Men and women are created equally. And men and women are created distinctively. That's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 1. So let's begin, first of all, with men and women are created. We have to start here because it's really easy to jump to equality and difference without starting with God. And like I said last week, in all of our discussions about gender, we have to start with who God is first before we get to discuss who we are. Because if we mess up on our understanding of who God is, we will get ourselves wrong. And a large reason we get ourselves wrong, by and large, as a culture, is because we get God wrong. And it shouldn't surprise us that John Calvin said in his opening chapter of the Institutes of the Christian Religion back in the 1500s, he says, the basic thrust of the Bible is to give us, number one, a true knowledge of God, and second, a true knowledge of ourselves. And so in order to have a true knowledge of ourselves, we need to have a true knowledge of God. And that begins with understanding God as creator. We live in a culture that believes we are self-creating and self-defining. But the Bible begins by starting that we are created and defined already. In Genesis 1, human beings are the climax of God's creative activity and the only part of the created order that corresponds directly to God himself, being made in his image and likeness. So this correspondence will enable humankind to exercise God's delegated rule over all of his creation, which is God's intention for mankind. All human beings are made in God's image with equal dignity, worth, purpose, and blessing. Now, I want to focus on three key words here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make. Let us make. All right, that's where we're going to begin. So the uniqueness of men and women was anticipated even before our arrival, just in the way creation was announced. See, on the previous five days up to this point in creation, God created by speaking the various elements into existence. Let there be light. Let there be so-and-so. Let there be so-and-so. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. But at this point, on the sixth day, God announces his, his, his intention to make us before the actual act of creation when he says, not let there be, but let us make. It's a huge difference. Because now, even though God spoke and the rest of creation, now he's getting his hands involved, so to speak. He's putting his hands on the creation that he's made to form something of his own initiative. We are, what are we to make of the let us make? Who is the us? Well, as I think we understand 
it's an early, most people consider it to be an early Trinitarian reference. That is, just as God is, exists eternity, eternally in equal equality as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so this plurality in the Godhead issues in the creation of a plurality in humanity in His image. Is it any surprise that a God who exists in an eternal community of persons would create different people who complement one another? This is the let us make. So part of male and female is being driven by Trinitarian activity. We're not just made male and female arbitrarily. We're made male and female because God is Trinity. That's why we have a plurality of humanity that exists in two distinct genders. Because God is a plurality of persons who exists in, a, in, in one equal in one equal substance. So notice, he says, let us, then he says, let us make. So in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It says it twice in verses 26 to 28. Humanity, then, has God as its source. So the starting point for answering all these questions about gender is to start with God and not with us. We are His creatures. See, what really is, really exists, because God really made what really is. Reality isn't subject to our feelings, our perspectives, or our orientations. The sun isn't the moon and can't claim to be, if it feels like it. The moon isn't the sun. The moon and the sun are what God made them to be, and so too we are what God made us to be. That's the first point. Men and women are created. Secondly, men and women are created equally. Men and women are created equally. Notice again verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. Now that's mankind. That is humanity. That is male and female, as he's going to explain in just a minute. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion. There's the them of the man. So man is them. Okay, let's be clear on that. When God says, let us make man, he means them. Male and female. Mankind. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, mankind. In the image of God, he created him, that is mankind. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them. So we get this them, and him, and man, and male and female. What are we to make of all this? Well, everything else in creation reflects something of God's glory, but humanity alone is described as being in God's image. Our correspondence to God is on a different level than the rest of creation. We glorify Him in a more unique and direct way because He made us and we actually image Him. Being made in God's image, image means that we have the capacity and the calling the reality and the responsibility to reflect God to the world and to represent Him in the world. So when the writer here, trust Moses, is writing the book of Genesis, 
he writes that man, which is Adam in Hebrew, referring to mankind, are both created in the image of God. They, this male and female in God's image will rule together. See, what is most important about us, brothers and sisters, is not our gender, but our common humanity in the image of God. This is where God begins in describing humanity. He doesn't start with distinction. He starts with similarity. He says, let us make mankind in our image. This is where God begins in describing humanity, not our differences, but our sameness. We are more alike as male and female than we are different because we are made in the image of God. And that is our fundamental identity marker. Not male and female, image of God as male and female. So, it's important to point this out, that this is one of the reasons the societal representation wars are so disenchanting. Our culture argues that in order for us to reach equality, we need to have different representation in various strata of society. Males and females need to be equally represented everywhere. Brothers and sisters, that completely undermines the fact that we're all made in the image of God. We are prioritizing as a culture our distinctiveness from one another rather than our similarity to one another. And while that at some level is good, as men and women do experience life in various different gendered ways as appointed by God, which is important for men and women to understand, we're called to help one another after all. At another level, this effort is profoundly undermining because it fails to recognize the common humanity that we already possess. See, the most important thing about us is not our experiences in life as gendered individuals. Our common experience in life as image bearers of God is the most foundational and fundamental thing. What is most fundamental to us is our sameness, not our difference. And this is one of the reasons why a male leadership in the church does not undermine care of sisters in Christ. Because we have more in common with them than we don't. Because we're all made in the image of God. We are not a different species from one another. When God parades animals in front of Adam to see what he would name them, Adam notices all the ways he is not like them. That's not like me. That giraffe has way too long a neck. My neck is far shorter than that. Wow, that elephant has a big head. That's not like me. That's, that, that bug is not like me. That lion is not like me. Seeing all the ways the animal kingdom is not like him. Yet, when he is put under and Eve is fashioned from his rib and is presented to him in Genesis 2.23... What is signified by Adam is the following. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, Adam notices all the ways Eve is like him. Finally, one like me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, not like the animal kingdom, which is so different and not like me. So he notices all the things they share in common. Brothers and sisters, is that the way we look at each other in the family of God? 
do you look at husbands, your wife, as one who's like this alien species from you that you could never possibly understand? Wives, do you look at your husbands that way? Like, you are so, and I, we, I get it, we do sometimes, don't we? Because there are legitimate differences. But fundamentally, we should look at each other and say, that's like me. She's like me, he's like me. And we should see that as brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at each other and we say, she's like me, or he's like me. There are differences. Adam notices those, believe me, they're naked. He sees them. He sees the differences. But he doesn't pay, but that's not the main thing he highlights. He highlights similarity. What is immediately brought to his mind is what is like, whoa, she's way different. That's not what comes to his mind, but wow, she's really like me. So our common our human commonality precedes our sexual difference. The same unity that Adam and Eve shared in their creation was reinforced in their marriage, right? Because in the very next verse, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? Two flesh? One flesh. One. Oneness. Again, highlighted in the marriage relationship. Oneness. Highlighting their essential unity in the midst of the marital covenant. Well, I hope that through just looking at male and female created both of them, mankind, in the image of God, and Adam recognizing the similarity between himself and Eve, and the one fleshness of their marital covenant, that you see the equality that God is trying to communicate in the creation narrative, that men and women are created, and that men and women are created equally in the image of God, equally valuable, equally purposeful, equally important, equally critical to the mission of God, as we will see in just a moment, and equally created by God himself in his very own image. Thirdly, Men and women are created differently. Men and women are created differently. So I want you to see this. In lines 2 and 3 of Genesis 1:27, the substitution of male and female for the image of God. Notice this in chapter 1, verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you have the expansion of him to now them. And the link being made in God's image to the plurality of male and female within the one humanity. So this unity and plurality reflect in some ways the plurality, as we've already seen, the plurality and unity we see in God himself, one being in three persons. We glimpse this, as we've already seen in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female, he created them. Some of these Adam, some of these mankind are male and some are female. These are different words. Adam, Adama, male, female. We are not genderless souls. We are not just made as blank slate people. We are creation of God as male and female. Maleness and femaleness are physically grounded through creation, not psychologically determined through emotion. Therefore, our gender is not something we search for in our feelings. It's something we find in our bodies. Now, we're going to talk about the compassion we need to have for people who experience that differently and how to 
helpfully, I trust, guide them into truth. But we need to recognize that in the Bible, our body is not an accessory to who we are. It is part of who we are. We can't properly understand who we are apart from the body God has created us in. Your body is not other than you. It's not just a receptacle for you. It is you. You don't just have a body. You are a body. Not just a body, but your body is as much a part of you as your soul is a part of your body. And God intends in the resurrection to reunite your body, your created body, which may lie fallow, which I hope not, I hope the Lord comes soon, but if He tarries, thousands more years decaying in the earth. But He will raise that body back and reunite it with that soul, and you will live in the body you live in glorified for all eternity. That's the glory of the body that God has created you to live, to have, to be. You don't, it's not just an external casing for your soul that doesn't matter. It's essential to your personhood. It's essential to who you are. Now our culture, with all of its radical bifurcation between soul and body, with all of its radical difference between the external and the internal, has completely misunderstood this. And we think we can be completely different on the inside than we are on the outside. That is a terrible way to live. That's a sad way to live, to feel. And, and, and our friends, our neighbors who experience this know the difficulty of it. And no amount of affirmation will ever solve that disconnect that they experience within compared to without. But I want you to notice that God creating you with the body that you have as male or female is not just good, it's very good. God says this is very good. Male and female in my image is very good. Now you know why Satan's after it. Now you know why Satan is so interested in getting people to not buy that. To not buy that we are created, first of all, but self-creating, which is what he told Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, just figure out who you are. And why we are so interested in trying to figure, and, and he's why he's so interested in sowing confusion about all that, and why we can't seem to arrive at any level of consensus around this. Because God is a God of order. Satan is a God of disorder. He sows division and discord and disorder. And has he not ran rampant with gender in our particular culture in that particular area by convincing us that we are not God's very good creation as male and female, but something else entirely? See, God's creation moved from good to very good with the creation of male and female humanity in his image. There's a deep and fundamental very goodness to the way that God has designed us to be. And our being made us our being made as man and woman is at the heart of it. Male and female have differences that are grounded in creation as God intended. How do we see this in the, in the Genesis narrative? How do we see men and women created differently? Well, three things quickly. First of all, male and female are created at different times, right? The man was made first, 
out of the dust of the ground in Genesis 2-7, and woman was created from the rib of Adam at a different time in Genesis 2.22. The man is made first and receives the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before God ever made the woman. In Genesis 2.26 or Genesis 2.16 and 17, God commands Adam to not eat from the tree. Not the woman hasn't been created yet. So we get the male and the female created at different times. They're not, they're, now, mankind, in one sense, is created at the same time. Because as we saw, and as we know, female is derived from male. Adam, Eve is derived from Adam. So within Adam himself is all the essential humanity that is needed to create female. But that doesn't mean that male and female are exactly the same because they are distinct from one another. So even the way God fashioned us and chose to create us. He could have just stood back and said, all right, let's create a male and a female. And both of them, is God able to do that? Of course he's able to do that. He can do that. But why did he do it the way he did it? Well, he doesn't tell us all exactly, but I think we can deduce that he's trying to communicate something even in the way he creates male and female. He's trying to say, they're the same and different, just like me. Just like me, just like, my, just, just like I am. The Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, male is not female. But the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, just as male and female are man. You see what it, he's doing this on purpose. So not only are they made at different times, but they're made differently with different origins. As I just said, the, the man is formed from the dust of the ground, the woman is made from the rib of the man. So their different names are word plays on their different origins. Adam or Adam, ground, dust, dirt, and woman, Isha, derived from the man. Not only are they made at different times, they are made differently with different origins, they are made different roles and responsibilities. So in these early chapters of Genesis, man, Adam is created, I think, to lead. He was created first. He was charged with naming the animals. He was given the probationary command. And even though Eve ate the forbidden fruit first, God held Adam responsible, not Eve responsible. God brings the woman to the man. The man names the woman and initiates a new family and marriage, leaving his parents, not hers. The man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. There's a sacrificial leadership embedded in the creation narrative, which is why when we get to Ephesians 5, we read, Husbands, sacrificially lead. Lay your life down for your wife. Lead her like Jesus laid his life down. We see that in Genesis 1. The man was called to lead. He was held responsible, but he was to lead sacrificially. He was to be the chief dyer in his household. If, if anybody was to look at the family, dads, husbands, ask yourself this. Ask your kids this. Who dies to themselves the most in this household? It better be the husband, biblically. Because that's how the husband is called to lead, by laying his life down for his wife. And so we see that even embedded in the creation narrative. Additionally, the woman is given the title of helper in Genesis 2, 18 and 20. 
Now, as I trust most of us know, helper is by no means a denigrating term. It is a beautiful, God-exalting term because God himself takes that term for himself all throughout the Old Testament, the very same term that he gives to the woman. Helper does not mean marginal assistant. Helper means essential complement by which the mission of God cannot be fulfilled without. Because if you notice, the mission of God in Genesis 1 is that they have babies. Uh, I don't think man's doing that on his own. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and let them have dominion over it. As kings and queens, they are to rule over God's creation. See, helper, friends, is not some sort of slight to the value and importance of our sisters and, our, and women in Christ and women in general. It is an beautiful, de- descriptive term. It's used also in Isaiah 30 and Ezekiel 12 to talk about military aid. You want to think about helper like that? <laughs> military. That's how, now I'm not, I'm not making an argument that women should serve on the front lines of combat. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that helper is used in terms of both military use and references to God in the Old Testament. So it's not a statement about the essence of a person. It's a statement about the function of a person, the role of a person. It describes a type of relationship where the assistance of another is needed. Without woman, there was a deficit to God's creation. It was not good that the man should be alone. So God makes the woman as a helper fit for him. Helper how? Helper to fulfill the mission that God created humanity for. So without woman, man could not fulfill Genesis 1.28, and the creation lacked the unity and plurality of a gendered humanity in the image of God. Now with that said, let me take these last 10 minutes and give us three applications. Three applications from what we've seen in Genesis 1 related to man being created, man and woman being created, man and women being created equally, and men and women being created distinctively or differently. First application, we need to reject the common cultural narrative around gender. The world claims that orientation is more essential than gender. It also claims that gender is a construct and action should correspond to our self-authenticating desires. The Bible, however, suggests that gender carries with it its own oughtness. Biblically, there is no distinction between gender and sex. Gender, as determined by the Creator, is a binary. This does not change the reality, even if our experience is contrary to it. Gender identity is not chosen by us. It is given by God and revealed in the body he gives. Our actions should correspond to divinely created, beautiful identity. Our bodies signify a divine design, and that design carries an oughtness to how we use that body. A man has a body that uniquely fits in a one-flesh union with a woman. It's not designed to fit together in a one-flesh union with another man. God created both male and female in Genesis 1 as a biologically complementary pair, a biologically complementary pair that two women or two men cannot recreate. A woman and a man can both be parents, but a woman can't be a father and a man can't be a mother. No matter what the headlines say, no man has ever been pregnant. A man can't become a woman and a woman can't become a man. 
A woman who has had a mastectomy and a hysterectomy is still a woman. A man who has had male reproductive organs removed through surgery, illness, or injury is still a man. Hormones and surgery can't change who God created us to be, male and female, made in his image. As I mentioned earlier, notice how Adam was made. It was the opposite of how many people today view themselves. God didn't first make a soul called Adam and then look for something physical to put that soul into, like, that, like the soul was the real Adam and his body was just the Tupperware. No, God actually started with the body. He started with the matter, and this is true in the case of Eve as well, in the rib of Adam. The matter was what God started with, which means in some sense the matter is more fundamental than even the spirit in God's way of thinking about creation. See, he formed a body from the ground which he then brought to life. Your body is not fundamentally a soul that's been shoved into a flesh casing. There is no complete you without your body. There is no I behind or before your body. Our bodies are an integral part of who we are. You don't just occupy it like a deck chair on the beach. It's intrinsic to who you are. You can't truly know yourself without paying attention to the body that God has given you. That's radically countercultural today. Secondly, we need to understand the why behind the what. The why behind the what. See, one of my concerns, and, and this is one of the reasons we're beginning next week in Sunday school, um, a 10-week class on what I'm calling cultural apologetics. What I mean by that is so often as the church and as brothers and sisters, we focus on the truth. What's the truth? What's the word say? What's the truth? And we do need to focus on the truth. What does the word say? But we also need to understand why God did the way, things, the way he did things. Because we're going to need more ammunition in the right sense, spiritually, not physically. We don't fight with flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers and seek to bring every thought and subjection to Christ. So but I'm talking about just mental ammunition. In, in wrestling with these, this way of thinking, which has touched our families and communities and friends, we need to be equipped not only to think about what is true, but also what is good and beautiful. We need to understand the goodness of God's ways and the beauty of God's ways, rather than just the truthfulness of God's ways. But all are important, but we need to be equipped to, to, with the why behind the what. Why did God create us male and female? Why was that a good thing? Why would God hardwire gender into our common humanity? Because this is how the image of God is displayed. And this is how the purpose of God is accomplished. We image God as distinctively male and female because God created us in his image to image him that way. God is equal in essence and distinct in person. Mankind in his image is to be equal in essence and distinct in personhood. Living according to our biological gender is not first and foremost who we feel ourselves to be so we can display our individual glory, but who God created us to be so we can display his eternal glory. Therefore, how we express our gender is ultimately governed by whose glory we are seeking to display. And as a sinner, 
we by nature and by choice aren't interested in displaying the glory of God. And Satan has a huge stake in the game in getting us off that path by helping to break that mirror so that God is not rightly reflected in the world that he made. And what was God's purpose in creating Adam and Eve in his image? Not only do they reflect him in their gender, but also because in their distinct yet complementary genders, they can create more image bearers. See, gender is also central to the purpose of God. Unless we live as male and female, God's purpose is thwarted. Human reproduction requires both a man and a woman. A binary gender difference is necessary to fulfill the divine mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Just as God is creator in Genesis 1, so he creates us in his image as sub-creators. Just as he created us in his image as male and female, so we can only create other image bearers as male and female. Two males can't create an image bearer. Two females can't create an image bearer without the aid of doctors and donors. Marriage is grounded on the union of two sexually different people. Genesis 1 is showing us that male and female is needed in the world to better image God. Genesis 1 shows us pairs of different but complementary things made to work together, heaven and earth, sea and land, male and female. And God's creation of humanity as male and female is the climax of all of this. So we want to champion as a church both the equal dignity of both genders while at the same time recognizing the beautiful distinctions between both genders. These, these many differences between the man and the woman indicate the ordered nature of their relationship, where he has the responsibilities to sacrificially lead, and she has the responsibilities to accept that leadership and partner with him in fulfilling their joint mission together. This is equality and sameness that is, re- that is shown between them, and difference and asymmetry. This is good and part of God's original intentions for humanity. Thirdly and finally, we need to live out God's good design. Way before, brothers and sisters, we start teaching and preaching and speaking sound doctrine biblically, we also need to live in an intentional and countercultural way. We need to embody and promote in our families and church an alternative to the world's way of doing things. This means we invest in our heterosexual marriages and make them the best Christ-glorifying picture of the gospel they can be. That's why we do grace marriage. And we recommit to being a loving church community that loves across boundaries of ethnicity and age and socioeconomic status and gender. We need to challenge the sexual revolution from above and below. From above, we do so by exposing the various misguided assumptions and preconditions that make the sexual revolution intelligible and plausible to people. But we also, as families, must be more proactive than ever in equipping our children to think biblically. A couple of verses during the week and attending church every Sunday, parents, is not going to cut it in the culture we're living in, as if it ever did. Sending our kids to a Christian school alone will not cut it. If it doesn't include a Deuteronomy 6 home where we are regularly in discussion with our children about these matters and working with them not only in terms of truthfulness, but also goodness and beauty. To where they understand that not only 
is being created male and female true, but it's good and it's beautiful. Because once they taste the goodness and the beauty of it, they won't buy the world's dirty water. But if you only get the truth and you don't see the goodness and beauty, then what happens when another form of goodness and beauty comes around that they're more attracted to? Well, that's going to capture the heart, no matter how much truth you've tried to inculcate into their heads. So parents, we've got to step up our game, intellectually, morally, and formationally. To be passive in this regard is a dereliction of duty. From below, we do so by demonstrating the truth about the human person and the human body. And we not only bear witness to that truth, but also, as we will learn more next week, we continue to grow as a church in becoming a place of belonging for the broken, welcoming the repentant refugees of the sexual revolution into our hearts and into our lives, being a new community of love around them. I'm reminded of what our sister in Christ Rosaria Butterfield shared in her book about the importance of that in her coming out of her lesbian lifestyle. She said, yes, it was understanding what the Bible taught that was part of that, but more than that, it was seeing in the church a community of love so deep and so powerful that made even the greatness of the community that I had pale in comparison to it. And recognizing that that was where God was. And so, brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us not only to know that men and women are created and that men and women are created equally and differently, but actually live that out in such a way that it is beautiful and good and not merely true. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that even in a few verses, we can mine an avalanche of riches. That there is so much embedded in just a few verses in Genesis 1 and 2 about who we are and why we're made and how we're made. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity that it gives us in a moment of confusion. But Lord, we not only need to embrace this in our heads, we need to embrace this in our hearts. We need to live out the goodness of your design. We need to promote it, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do just that. Lord, for any among us here that are confused about their own personal gender or are confused about their friends and what they're saying about their gender, Lord, we pray that they would dive deeply into your word and that you would shine light into their hearts to help them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Thank you for the beautiful truthfulness and goodness of your word. And we pray all this in the name of our true and beautiful and good Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.